Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 67, Skanderbeg. Wow. So there are a lot of new patrons uh, over the last few weeks. You all have been exceptionally generous. You all, in this case, being in particular, Ivaila Dermajeva. Uh, it was great meeting you in Sofia, Ivaila. All the best. Helen Towers increased her pledge. The Raving Celt, uh, John Ezel, Dan Shutt, Jan Heinrichs, and Michelle Hopganev. Wow, thank you so much, all of you. Uh, it really, really means a lot, especially in this moment where I've been working extra, extra hard uh, to build a brand new website from scratch, which should be up very, very shortly. Uh, I just forgot that uh, my former kind of podcasting producer, Martin, still owns the domain. And so I have to get the domain from him and wait for it to transfer before I can stick the website on there. But the website is done. It's got a great new style, new content, new features. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a personal blog for me. There There's information about the book uh, that I'm writing. Uh, there's information about all the seasons. Uh, you can get in touch. You can join a mailing list. I'm going to be, in the future, adding a lot more detail over each episode. I'm going to try to start adding who the major characters are, uh, what years are covered, what are the major events, Hopefully, maybe at some point I'll go back in time and add that, but it's that's going to be an immense amount of work, one thing at a time. But, you know, I know it's been a long, long delayed, and uh, I finally kind of put my nose to the grindstone and built this new website. So I hope you all really enjoy it. Go check it out. Um, like I said, hopefully in the next day or two, that uh, domain will get transferred, and then it'll be up. All right, so into the narrative. Last time, the young Sultan Mehmet's boundless energy continued his conquests as he took Bosnia and Lesbos. Skanderbeg and his Albanian rebels, on the other hand, continued to defeat the Sultan's armies. But now, those battles are part of a larger war against Venice, originally a larger European crusade. But now that Hungary has sued for peace and the Pope has died before his army could leave Italy, Venice and the Albanians stand alone against the Ottoman Empire, an empire ready to devote its full strength to defeating them. Now, more precisely, we left off last time in August of 1465 as a second Ottoman force under the Albanian Janissary commander, taken as a child from the Devshirme, lost to Skanderbeg. But, so this is Albanian commander lost his last battle, but instead of giving up, Sultan Mehmed doubled down, sent an army more than twice the size of the previous one. So now, 40,000 Ottoman soldiers in two separate armies are marching to face Skanderbeg's scant force of 12,000. So that's the setup. That's where we are at this moment. Now, the Ottoman target is the same target they've had for a while, the mighty fortress of Kruje. Skanderbeg's first move is pretty clear here. Now, there's there's no way he can allow those two Ottoman armies to link up. You know, his his twelve thousand strong force stands again stands a chance against two twenty thousand strong armies, but a single forty thousand, very very little chance of success there. So what this means is that 
He has to quickly go on the offensive to destroy one and then the other. So he begins by tackling the kind of slightly larger force heading in from Macedonia under that Albanian commander's control. Now, even this half the Ottoman force is, in this case, 12,000 strong. So, you know, the, the larger force is double what Skanderbeg has. So how does he tackle this? Well, he's a man of, well, he's a predictable man in this case. Skanderbeg starts with his usual tactics. He lays an ambush. Then, once the ambush is set, he sets out with a small force to engage the enemy. The Ottomans rush forward to attack, hoping to kill Skanderbeg and thereby decapitate his rebellion, which, I'll have you remember, has been going on for 22 years at this point. But Skanderbeg held them off, gradually pressing them until they moved right into the trap that he'd laid. The Ottoman force was quickly surrounded by Albanian soldiers and, as they attempted to retreat, took massive losses. But of course we know Skanderbeg can hardly rest on his laurels. This victory is only step one. Because word came from that remaining 16,000 strong Ottoman army that they were marching to the fortress or from the fortress of Berat in central Albania and were doing tremendous damage to the Albanian countryside along the way. So the Albanian army has to turn around and rush to meet them. The two forces meet at Kashar. Skanderbeg uses that classic step tactic that, honestly, I can hardly believe the Ottomans fell for. They were quite familiar with it themselves. Skanderbeg sent a small cavalry detachment out ahead and then had them retreat, drawing the Ottomans in. As they approached, the Albanians mounted a full attack and killing the Ottoman commander, completely routed his army. Now, overall, the Ottomans are estimated to have lost a total of 24,000 of the 40,000 soldiers they sent into Albania. Once again, Skanderbeg proved his world-class military skill by defeating forces which outnumbered him nearly 4 to 1. Honestly, I, th this result is a bit surprising. I mean, the Ottomans don't seem to ever quite learn or figure out how to fight Skanderbeg. I mean, they seem to do the right thing in the sense that they get Albanian commanders or Ottoman commanders who are familiar with Skanderbeg, who know him, who know his mind, who know his tactics. Uh, you know, slight digression, but this is in many ways how uh, Napoleon was defeated. You know, Napoleon had these brilliant battle tactics, but over time... The people facing him, they learned how his mind worked. They learned what opportunities he would take, how he would respond to various circumstances. And ultimately, the Duke of Wellington defeated him at Waterloo. And the Ottomans are trying to do that here. They've been trying again for 22 years, but they can't seem to get it right. My guess is that, you know, a combination of better Albanian morale, the home advantage, I mean, Skanderbeg and his forces certainly understand this rough Albanian terrain very well, and without a doubt some luck, are bringing the Albanians just victory after victory. But still, while all this is going on, the larger war between Venice and the Ottomans is still going on. And at this moment, that war has stalled. In fact, Venice nearly got itself into a war with the Knights Hospitaller at the same time, because the knights controlled the island of Rhodes. The knights had attacked a Venetian convoy which was carrying Moorish merchants on their way to the Mamluks, 
The Moors, remember, are sort of uh, North African Muslims who uh, helped conquer Spain and the Iberian Peninsula. The Mamluks are this Islamic state that controls Egypt at this moment. Um, and so this whole scuffle triggers an immediate diplomatic crisis in which the Mamluks imprison every single Venetian citizen on their territory and threaten to join the Ottomans in their war against Venice. Venice's response then nearly triggers a war with the Knights Hospitaller themselves. But very luckily for the Venetians, diplomacy eventually wins out, the Moors are released, and everything kind of calms down. But still, this is very nearly a disaster because, you know, this war is hard enough for Venice at a moment when the Ottomans don't have a very good navy and the Venetians have an excellent navy. But most likely the Egyptians joining things would have tipped the scales quite significantly. Now, by the time 1466 rolls around, Venice is beginning to pick things up a bit as a new commander takes over their war effort. This meant taking several Aegean islands before landing more troops in Morea and attacking Athens. Now, that attack on Athens fails, but Venetian soldiers, when this happens, they descend and said decide to turn and attack the Ottoman regional base at Patras. But just on the verge of victory here, the local Ottoman Bey shows up with 12,000 cavalry to face this meager force of nearly just 12,000 Venetian Greek soldiers. And well, you can probably guess what happened when they showed up out of the blue, just as the Venetians were on the brink of victory. Well, the Venetians are overwhelmed. Many are captured, including their commander. Those who were captured were impaled to send a message to the local population. A few days later, the overall Venetian commander showed up with another force to challenge the Ottomans, but he too was defeated. He soon fell ill and within a year was dead. Thus, after this kind of very brief, brief, brief return to active fighting, the Moran front of the Venetian-Ottoman war quiets down again, and the whole war as the war kind of as a whole just drags on. Now, unsurprisingly, with Morea nearly entirely under Ottoman control, the war moves back to Albania as Mehmet prepares yet another invasion bent on crushing Skanderbeg. Because Again, there's not much more to conquer for the Ottomans in Morea. They really just need to defend what they have. And the Ottomans, as we know, can fight several large-scale wars at once. So they have ample, ample uh, resources to devote solely to Albania. And so this is, to put it lightly, a dangerous moment for Skanderbeg. You know, he's fought off these 24,000, 30,000, 10,000, 15,000 uh, soldier armies time and time again. But... He has never, not one time in 22 years, 23 now, faced a full-size Ottoman army, a full Ottoman invasion force. We're talking 100, somewhere between 100,000 and 30,000. The real numbers are likely on the lower scale. We could say easily 50,000. And, okay, you might say you just faced 40,000, but 40,000 split into two separate forces coming from two different places. This is a larger force than that all at once. So, what on earth is Skanderbeg going to do? Well, luckily for him, initially, the Venetians respond by sending reinforcements to aid in the defense of his cities. Um, but no soldiers are sent to Skanderbeg himself. So the Venetians are kind of defending their territory in the region. Um, you know, that's, that's nice. That's uh, slightly helpful. 
But Skanderbeg still has probably around those 12,000 soldiers he had before. It doesn't seem he took many losses in the last war. No, Mehmet was determined not to make the mistake that he and his father had made when they last laid siege to the great Albanian fortress of Kruje 16 years earlier. So instead of challenging Skanderbeg and relying on overwhelming numbers, a tactic which we know has failed for the Ottomans time and time again, Instead, Mehmet decides to take his time, isolate the fortress, reduce Skanderbeg's supplies and manpower, whittle down the morale of his soldiers. He decides to take away the advantages that Skanderbeg has and that this is the most effective way to fight him. Now, Mehmet goes about this by dividing his force in two and having them ravage the countryside, forcing the population to flee to safety. Skanderbeg, for his part, responds by sending much of the population under his control to safety in Italy. But this worries the Pope, and the Italians take it as a sign that Albania's fall and a subsequent invasion of Italy is more or less imminent. Now, fortunately, it wasn't long before they were informed that it's okay, Albania is still fighting the Ottomans, they have not fallen, no invasion of Italy is imminent, but let's say it gave the Italians quite a scare. But still, with the way this new Albanian war is going, the question surely was in the air. I mean, how long can Skanderbeg and his paltry force hang on? And it's a good question. Is an invasion, an Ottoman invasion of Italy, the next step? Well, before that question gets answered, Skanderbeg still has a war to fight. So he retreats up the mountains around Shkodr, which is now in northern Albania, These mountains, which I can say from personal experience, are very, very harsh, difficult to navigate, uh, rocky, kind of dark, just a difficult, difficult terrain. Uh, If I can dig up some old photos, I'll try to see if I can find them. It'd be from almost 10 years ago. But if I can find the old photos, I'll post them on the website. So Skanderbeg gathers his soldiers. And Ottoman Akinji, this Ottoman irregular light cavalry, they prowl the countryside. They run around causing destruction and death, while Ottoman soldiers climb the mountains to try to figure out where the Albanian rebels are. So now it's a game of hide-and-seek, right? Skanderbeg is off in the mountains hiding. The Ottomans are trying to find him, but, well, we know he has that home field advantage. The Ottomans do not know these mountains very well. So as the main Ottoman army moves through the lowlands, Mehmet decides to have forests around the roads cut down to prevent just the kind of ambushes that Skanderbeg had utilized to great effect up to this point. So what we can see here is Mehmet is learning from his mistakes. He's getting very good intelligence. He's making sure his forces are spread out so he can find the Albanians. He's not going to get caught off guard. But to further reinforce that, he's getting rid of all these trees, all the places where Skanderbeg and the Albanians might be able to hide. Furthermore, he's harming the Albanians' ability to get supplies by ravaging the countryside. He's harming local morale by uh, killing civilians and and causing great damage. You know, very often with armies, once their local homes and farms are threatened, soldiers want to go home. They want to go defend their homes and their families, not stay with this army hiding up in the mountains. And so... It was a good move by Mehmed. I mean, he he showed his military prowess that we've seen him show time and time again. 
Now this goes on for two months as the Ottomans methodically prepare to lay siege to Kruje. By mid-June, everything is ready and the Ottomans begin a prolonged uh, bombardment with their cannons. But, well, as you might remember, Kruje is really a very impressive fortress and so this bombardment has little effect. And by this point, Skanderbeg, well, he's getting desperate. Even though you know the, the fortress is strong, he can't simply rely on the fact that it's going to hold out. And so he sends word to Italy reminding them that he has fought on, that he is still fighting, and that he could really use some military and financial aid. Venice, in spite of treaty obligations, sends about a third of the money it was supposed to and none of the soldiers that it promised, stating that it was far too concerned with its holdings in Dalmatia and in the Aegean. So, typical overall management of a war, right? The Venetians are being completely ineffective, more or less everywhere where they're fighting, and the one place where the Venetians and their side are winning, eh, they don't want to devote the soldiers. They'd rather keep them where they're losing. But still, you can guess, Skanderbeg is not about to let that stop him. He kept up his resistance, in spite of the fact that he could do nothing to relieve the embattled soldiers in the fortress of Kruje. But after some time, Mehmet seems to have decided that the fortress could not be taken, and so Mehmet left with much of his army. Though he did leave a small force to continue the siege of the fortress just in case, but still, he largely went home. And now, honestly, I find this decision very confusing. It's not like Mehmet faced an invasion or some other threat elsewhere that he really had to rush off and take care of. I mean, the war was going well, he faced no threats anywhere else, and it seems he could have eventually conquered Kruja with his overwhelming force. I mean, it's not like he gave up after a couple of years. But, well, we could guess that maybe Mehmet was just a very impatient man. I mean, we've seen how he's just bursting with energy, conducting multiple campaigns at the same time, and so perhaps he got a bit bored and thought his focus was better used elsewhere, and that Surely Skanderbeg was finished. I mean, after all, his Mehmet's forces still couldn't find Skanderbeg. He was still hiding in the mountains. But, honestly, considering Skanderbeg's reputation, that that kind of, well, that decision by Mehmet seems unwise, let's say. But in any case, Mehmet left the same Albanian Janissary commander who had recently lost a few battles with Skanderbeg in charge of about 18,000 cavalry, and 5,000 infantry to continue operations. Possibly less, again, the troop numbers are a bit iffy. The siege, though, was shortly afterwards abandoned, but the Ottomans were intent on building a more permanent base of operations in central Albania, where they could resist Skanderbeg, who was still, again, hiding in the north of the country. And so instead of continuing the siege, the Ottomans changed their minds and constructed the fortress of Elbasan. Now, Today, Elbasan is a sleepy university town in central Albania. Uh, I, again, remember visiting her there about eight, nine years ago. But in the late summer of 1466, well, this was a very important strategic position because this fortress being built here by the Ottomans, well, this is no small matter. It was close to the Venetian base at Durazzo, again, Durachium, if you're remembering the, the, the other name for the city, and you'll remember that it has been very important in Bulgarian and Byzantine history up to this point. So it's in central Albania, easy access to the north, easy access to the south, easy access to Durazzo. 
And this leads the Italians to really start freaking out again because they now feel it's only a matter of time before Albania falls to the Ottomans. And so, in response, Skanderbeg leaves his forces and goes to Italy to make his case that he is not defeated, they should continue supporting him, and that this war has to continue. There, in Italy, he meets with the King of Naples, Ferdinand, as well as the new Pope, Paul II. Now, I know this is going to come as a shock, but internal squabbles amongst these Italians, as well as Europe to be more broad, kind of more broadly, uh, well, all of these squabbles caused problems from the very beginning of these meetings. King Ferdinand was concerned about Ottoman expansion, but he was hesitant to fully commit until some local issues were worked out with between him and Venice. The Pope was Venetian, and so he was obviously more worried about Ferdinand than the, and the Neapolitans than the Ottomans. So, yeah, anyone that's ever seen how wars tend to get run is not surprised here. In short, everyone involved had an excuse to not really help Skanderbeg in any serious way. This dragged on for months while the Ottomans attacked Venetian possessions around Albania in an attempt to bring them under Ottoman control. Now, this failed, however, and the fighting quieted down for a winter as no doubt many Albanians in that ravaged countryside wonder what they were going to eat, how they were going to survive the winter. By January, the Pope was still delaying to see what kind of support Skanderbeg would receive from the Venetians and from the Neapolitans. No one wanted to be the first to commit anything. Everyone said, oh, let's hold back, give it some time, see how everyone else responds, and then we'll decide what we're going to do. To make matters worse, Venice... Skanderbeg's ostensible ally was pressuring the Pope to not contribute any funds because they wished to surrender Kruja and end the war, despite them refusing to end the war when the Ottomans had offered some peace agreement recently. So, in essence, Italy is very willing to throw Albania and Skanderbeg under the bus. But King Ferdinand, well, he even signed a peace agreement with Mehmed at this moment. So this ends any possibility of support from him. Remember, King Ferdinand has been a, an important patron of Skanderbeg, a supporter of Skanderbeg in Albania, but he ducks out here. He says, I'm not getting involved in this war. So Skanderbeg finally leaves Rome in February of 1467 at the end, you know, as the winter starts to end with a paltry sum of money from the Pope and knowledge that, well, Albania was not going to get any help from anyone, and that if Skanderbeg did not act, Albania would soon be lost. Skanderbeg's commanders in Albania had recently scored a victory against the Ottomans, so that was positive, but still, the situation remained dire. Upon his return, Skanderbeg gathered all the forces he could, Italians, Venetians, and Albanians, 13,400 men in all, and roughly the same size as most of the armies he's commanded against the Ottomans up to this point. And with all of them, they attempted to break the siege of Kruja. To do this, he split his forces into small groups with able commanders each and set about assaulting the Ottoman camp. The first stage began with Skanderbeg attacking an Ottoman guard positioned at a strategic point and subsequently defeating a relief force sent to help, capturing the Ottoman commander's brother and nephew in the process. Then, after four days, the main attack was carried out simultaneously by Skanderbeg's army and the forces still inside the fortress, resulting in the Ottomans routing and their commander being killed. 
The remaining 10,000 Ottoman soldiers in camp were then surrounded and their surrender demanded. Skanderbeg wished to allow them to surrender, but his commanders overrode him and the camp was massacred instead. Only a small portion of those Ottoman soldiers managed to fight their way to freedom. Once again, the Ottomans had incurred massive losses and the great fortress of Kruya was saved. Better still, the Venetians had been taking advantage of the Ottoman focus in Albania, taking two more Aegean islands and laying siege to the main Ottoman base in Morea, Patras. This Venetian force, however, was soon defeated by a local Ottoman bay and forced to abandon the siege. Still, Venice, Venice at this point was ready to end the war. Albania remained devastated. The Ottoman fortress at El Bassam was still a great danger. And Skanderbeg attempted to take this fortress at El Bassam, but he didn't get any artillery from Venice and so he failed. And so this great danger in the middle of Albania remained. But Mehmet, still the same man he's always been, refused to accept this defeat. His defeat at the second siege of Kruya had come in April 1467, but by June, another Ottoman army was marching towards the fortress, determined to finish the job. Iskanderbek had seen the Ottomans throw army after army into Albania before, but even by those standards, this was a remarkably fast turnaround. It had been just a few months since the last huge Ottoman force left the country. So this time, Skanderbeg met the Ottoman army head on, but the battle was inconclusive and the Albanians ultimately retreated into the mountains. The Ottomans then briefly laid siege to Durazzo and Kruje before realizing they didn't really have the strength to take either city. Ultimately, the Ottoman force contended itself to plunder the area and go home. So remarkably, Albania had survived to fight another day. But meanwhile, events elsewhere had been happening which would affect these event, the, this situation greatly. So these events were between Hungary and Moldova, Moldavia. You can kind of call it either. It's the modern state of Moldova, then it's Moldavia. Now, these two states had always had kind of a rocky relationship. Moldavia's independence, you'll recall, had been the result of a rebellion against Hungary just about a century previously. Since then, Hungarian kings had on several occasions attempted to bring Moldavia back into the fold, back into Hungary, but to no avail. Now, Moldavia was ruled by Stefan Celmari, or Stephen the Great, a cousin of Vlad Dracul. And, well, you can probably guess his name is The Great. And uh, if you go to Moldova now, he's on literally every single piece of paper money that they have. So, so you can tell big things are coming out of this guy. Now, Stefan Celmare and Vlad Dracul had fought many times over this one particular fortress on the border. And now that Vlad was a prisoner in Hungary, well, Stefan used a forged letter to convince the garrison that they had been ordered to hand over the fortress to the Moldavians. Remarkably, this worked. But the problem was this made Mehmet furious. Why, you ask? Well, because Wallachia was a Ottoman vassal and Mehmet did not like to see his vassals losing important fortresses to stupid tricks. But not in a position to wage war, 
owing to the kind of ongoing conflict with Venice and Albania, Mehmet was forced to accept the situation for now. Though you can probably guess Mehmet is not going to forget. Sensing he needed allies, Stefan Tilmare became a Polish vassal, receiving an impressive fortress of Chotin in return. I've also visited this fortress, which is now part of Western Ukraine back in 2012. I'll again try to dig up some photos of it and put it on the website. But it's an impressive fortress, some serious scaled walls right on the, the banks of a river. Now by Summer of 1467, just as Skanderbeg defeated the latest army uh, from the Ottomans in Albania, there was an uprising against King Corvinus in Transylvania, which was supported by Stefan Celmare. And so again, this awkward relationship between Moldavia and Hungary is coming forward. And so, well, the only response that the Hungarian king Matthias Corvinus can think of is war against the rebellion and against Moldavia. He begins with the rebellion. The Hungarian king gathers 40,000 men and 500 cannons, marches and crushes the rebellion. He then takes his force straight to Moldavia. As his path is going to take him through the northern stretches of the Carpathian Mountains, the outnumbered Moldavians cut down trees to blockade the passages. I'll include also a photo of one of these kind of passes through the Carpathians uh, that I happened to go through some years ago. I don't know why the more recent episodes are covering a lot of places I visited, but... Yeah, you guys get nice photos. So the Hungarian army, they passed through the Carpathians and into Moldavia in mid-November. But King Corvinus is worried about the loyalty of some of his soldiers. And so he's very cautious when he works out his plan of attack. The Hungarian army moves through Moldavian territory, destroying towns along the way. And by December, they're offering peace. But this is rejected by the Moldavians. Finally, by mid-December, Corvinus discovers the location of Stefan Tomare's army and that they're just 12,000 to face his 40,000. Rather familiar numbers, don't you think? Now, Corvinus also discovers that the Moldavians are planning to attack the next afternoon, and so he fortifies his camp, digging a ditch and ringing it with wagons. During the day, the Moldavians set fire to the town the Hungarians were occupying to create confusion. Then, the Moldavians attack. In spite of the Hungarian fortifications, those wagons, and the superior Hungarian numbers, the Moldavians were ferocious, and fighting lasted long into the night. Pouring into the burning streets of the town, Corvinus, suddenly he became wounded by arrows and narrowly escaped with his life as the fighting raged. The battle soon turned, and the Hungarians retreated back to the mountains. There, they were forced to abandon their cannons because they couldn't get them past those great wooden blockades and the mountain passes that the Moldavians had constructed. In the aftermath, Corvinus enacted brutal revenge on those who had perpetrated the uprising in Transylvania, which began this whole war, forcing the region to pay an exorbitant amount to help him replace the 12,000 soldiers he'd just lost in Moldavia. Within a year, the two rulers came to peace and even agreed to an alliance, likely with the looming Ottoman threat paramount in their minds. Now, speaking of the Ottomans, without any interest in attempting another invasion of Albania anytime soon, Mehmet turned his attention to Anatolia, and more specifically, the Karamanids. Now, you'll remember that the Karamanids were the most powerful Turkish Beylik in Anatolia, 
They had recently lost some internal struggles over who would succeed their aging ruler. The younger son had declared himself the new bey, but he was bested by his older brother. So the younger boy turned to Mehmet for aid. Mehmet invaded to support the younger of the two and took the most important fortress cities in the region, Karman and the old Seljuk capital of Konya. Absorbing most of the Karamanids' interior territories into the Ottoman Empire, but leaving their coastal area. While this campaign was ongoing, back in Albania, plague had broken out, further adding to the hardship of the population and reducing the ability of Skanderbeg to recruit soldiers to resist further Ottoman invasions. In the early days of 1468, Skanderbeg called a meeting of Albanian and Venetian commanders to formulate a new strategy for the continued resistance against the Ottomans, as well as just the broader conduct of the ongoing Ottoman-Venetian war. There, Skanderbeg contracted malaria and died. He was 62, and had led the most effective resistance to the Ottomans that Europe had seen, and he had led that resistance for more than 25 years his son, John Castriotti II, lived on and would eventually marry the daughter of who else but Lazar Brankovic, himself a descendant of the Byzantine emperor Manuel II Palaiologos. Thus, as Stephen Runciman points out, the descendants of Skanderbeg living today in southern Italy are also some of the last descendants of that particular Byzantine royal house. But to finish up today's episode, let's reflect a moment on the legacy of Skanderbeg. Without a doubt, he was one of the most important people of the 15th century. The Ottomans lost tens of thousands of soldiers, which could have been used in conquests elsewhere, as they sent army after army into Albania, only to be defeated time and time again. This bought Hungary, Italy, Moldavia, all of them more time to prepare for the Ottoman onslaught that's coming their way. But also something less tangible. Skanderbeg inspired. He showed the rest of Europe that the Ottomans could be defeated. After seeing so many enormous crusader armies led by powerful kings be utterly routed by the Ottomans, watching the plucky Skanderbeg best army after army played a vital role in boosting the morale of the rest of Europe. Still, this legacy is tied with the unfortunate fact that Skanderbeg's victories could only have so much effect, absent support from the rest of Europe. That the Italians and the Pope consistently placed their own political goals over supporting one of the few people who were con consistently fighting and defeating the Ottomans was nothing short of foolish. It's hard to imagine, considering how much Skanderbeg's tactics relied on ambushes and tricks what the man could have done had he been put at the head of a real European army, intent on meeting and defeating Mehmet. But it wasn't to happen. Today, Skanderbeg is the singular hero of Albania. In the times I visited that country, I've been surprised at how ubiquitous he was. But now, having really studied his life, I truly understand why Albanians are so proud of the man. Now, in his absence, it remains to be seen how long Albania can continue to resist the Ottomans. 
Next time, we'll see how Venice and Albania, still embroiled in their war against the Ottomans, fare without their greatest warrior. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, uspech. Good luck.